the birth of my first son is really what changed everything for me. And <laughs> anybody listening to this would think, oh, isn't that great? Like he took responsibility. Well, it's not that simple. You know, I, he was born and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm holding this baby and I'm feeling love and affection from him and for him that I've never felt before. Like as an addict, I just didn't think that I was capable of it or that I was entitled to it. And so I'm having these amazing feelings and I'm like, surely this is it. You know, I'm going to stay sober for him. And, you know, it worked for a little while. And a couple of months later, I found myself, you know, in the worst part of town, sitting on the ground outside a, a dumpy motel room and I'm watching the police search my car and I'd, I'd been on a six day binge. You know, I hadn't slept, I hadn't eaten. Uh, it was a disaster of bullet holes in my car because, you know, some drug deal had gone bad and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there and I, I, the crazy as it is in that like, uh, very fuzzy moment, I had the clearest thought I'd ever had. And that was that, you know, my son can't save me and like, nobody's coming to save me. Like I have to save myself. And that night I went to an AA meeting for the first time ever, like I meant, like I went with purpose. That's Charlie Engel, and this is Inner Voice. What's up, everybody? It's Travis McKenzie here, the host of the Inner Voice podcast. I'm very excited to bring you today's conversation. It's with a great man, Charlie Engel. Uh, Charlie and I have become friends over the last few months. We met in Vermont at the 29029 of Everesting event in October. And to say that Charlie has stories for days would be a massive understatement. Uh, as you'll hear throughout, he describes himself as a runner, he's a writer, he's a recovering addict and a keynote speaker. But there's so much more to Charlie, which you'll also get to experience in today's conversation. He's ran across the Sahara Desert. He started a non-profit organization with Matt Damon. And he's also written the best-selling book, Running Man. You'll learn so much about Charlie and his story in this conversation. There's not much that we didn't cover. We talk about his interactions with Michael Jordan during his days at the University of North Carolina, his early running career. We talk about his journey into addiction and how running saved him from a certain death sentence. We talk about running across the Sahara Desert and the honest story of the documentary that was created about the journey. Uh, we talk about his experience at 29029 and the life-changing conversations that he had with complete strangers while hiking to 29,029 feet at Stratton Mountain, uh, and so much more. Before we get into the episode, I'd be remiss not to talk about the current climate of uncertainty that we're all facing, given the global pandemic. There's no doubt that it's a difficult time for all of us. I hope you're all safe and healthy and respecting social distancing guidelines and staying home. With that in mind, I've learned a lot about myself over the last few weeks. I've realized how privileged that I am and we are. I have a beautiful family. We're all safe and healthy. And I know over the next little while, the news is going to get worse before it's going to get better. But with that in mind, I implore you to stay connected, stay in touch with those that you love and check in virtually on your friends. It's important that we create and foster this community more than ever. Another thing I've realized is that I've been sitting on recordings just like this one uh, it's daunting to put your work out into the world. And you know what? This is the first step for me of moving beyond that. There's no such thing as perfect. And in fact, perfect is the enemy of good. 
So with that in mind, I look forward to bringing you many more imperfect conversations. Thanks for listening. Now, here's Charlie. Very excited to be here with Charlie Engel today. Charlie and I met at the recent 29029 event in Stratton, Vermont, and we'll get to that a little bit in a little bit. But uh, first of all, Charlie, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm doing great. It's it's gotten cold here in North Carolina, so I'm I'm having to you know rethink my workouts. But <laughs> it is it is that time of year, so I'm I'm happy to be able to throw on some of my uh, warm clothes. Exactly. Well, I'm sitting here in my living room here in Boston, and uh, today it was about 25 degrees this this morning. So I'm I'm waiting till a little bit later in the day to go for my run because I'm a fair weathered athlete, having grown up in Australia. Yeah, North Carolina is not quite so bad, but yes, uh, I, I hear you, and it is that time of year. I always tell people, because they're like, I have the hardest time after the time change. I'm like, look, you just got to you gotta shift your thinking, and you got to wear the right clothes. And if you do those two things, you know, it's the same as any other time of year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I actually tell a story. I moved to Boston about a year ago. We, My wife and I were in Vancouver, um, Toronto, previous to that, and Australia uh, in the beginning, but... I actually have sp- I spent more time last year outside on my bike and training here in Boston than I did in Vancouver because in the Pacific Northwest it rains all the time you go outside you get wet you get miserable so I did a lot more stuff inside whereas last year as you say you layer up you put the right clothes on I was able to ride and run outside for the entire winter which was a which was a surprise to me having come from uh, a different environment like that yeah, it's funny. And I mean, again, I say it all the time. It just is, you know, it's the old lesson. It's layers and, and just making good decisions about what you're wearing. And if you do that, man, you could do anything. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Now, you've mentioned North Carolina. I uh, I have this uh, a bit of a random question, but I want to go back a little bit of, uh, in time. And I want you to tell me about your time with Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah, wow. So funny. I am, I am a, uh, I grew up here mostly in North Carolina. I lived in California a bit, but my, my, uh, I'll take a short step further back. So my grandfather was the head track coach and the cross country coach at the university of North Carolina for about 40 years. And he died when I was only a year old. So I never knew him, but I grew up the way we do in families with this sort of legacy conversation about, you know, my grandfather and, my, my family would say, you're going to be a runner. And so I grew up a huge Tar Heel basketball fan because basketball is what we're known for. And, you know, I arrived at college as a 17-year-old freshman, and and um, I decided that I'm going to go out for the basketball team. And, I mean, it's audacious and foolish because I don't have that kind of talent. But I managed to make it onto the JV team, and then I – I ended up switching over to being a manager because, uh, you know, there's no way I was ever going to make the varsity basketball team at Carolina. But lo and behold, the second year I was there, a guy named Michael Jordan shows up. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, Sam Perkins and James Worthy were there. And so we had this amazing team. And so for, you know, for several days a week, every every week for two years, I got a chance to actually be on the court with Michael and, and hanging out with him and he was there for summer league basketball and and you know I got to play with the guy and he was you know he wasn't yet Michael Jordan but you could sure see the signs of what he was going to be mhm well it's so growing up in australia you know a lot of our 
introduction to you know US sports was through the weekly show. You know, it'd have a highlight show on a Saturday and. Basketball at the time with Michael Jordan became a global sport. Um, you know, we would sit there and everyone was either a Charlotte Hornets fan or a, or a Chicago Bulls fan or a Seattle Supersonics mm-hmm. fan. So there was kind of the three teams that would, you would see. And uh, there was obviously, you know, great documentaries and stories mm-hmm. told about Michael. So kind of growing up and, um, you know, idolizing someone from another part of the world was really cool. But to, to hear you had those personal connections is great. Yeah, Travis. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, and he actually credits me with, you know, really putting his career over the top. So <laughs> I've you know. seen that. I think I've read that somewhere. <laughs> it's nice to I just, put it. <laughs> I, I think if I just keep telling that, if I keep saying that, you know, the way in this day and age, apparently all you have to do on social media is just say things, and and they actually become true. Well, so. it's, it's great to be able to put a face to a name because I've read your name so much in the Michael Jordan um, books and documentaries. Exactly. And it's nice exactly. To know this is the Charlie he was talking about. Right. Well, what you'll see actually, and and the, the you know the truth of the matter is, in college, you know, he used to see me all the time, and he'd say, "How's it going, buddy?" And so for a while, I actually considered changing my name legally to Buddy. To Buddy. Um, just, just so calling me by name. That's awesome. Um, that's great. Now you, uh, mm. I have heard that you were a football player before that. So you came to college, um, you know, you started to play football. You, uh, I think you broke your ankle or you hurt your ankle and that kind of was the switch to, 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 to basketball. But where did running fit into your life? You talked about your grandfather and his legacy at the school, but up until that point, was it, you know, just a, a thing for you to train and be fit for your real sports or where did running fit into your life at that point? Man. Yeah. So I had run in high school, I ran cross country and, uh, interestingly back then in the, in the late seventies and dating myself, um, you know, the coach could like approve. I was a good enough runner that I would, I would go to I'd do my running in the morning and then I go to football practice in the afternoon. Um, you know, because both sports were in the fall, but I, I could actually, you know, play football on Friday nights and still go to the cross country meets on, you know, Tuesday or whatever it was. And, um, and I was, and that was good. I was by no means elite or great, but I was, you know, ranked in the state and, um, you know, and I could hold my own. I ran primarily like the half mile and the mile. And I will say, looking back, I don't, I don't remember being willing to like suffer enough. I mean, I, I had some, I had some, some really memorable races for me where, you know, I, I fought my way through, but I, I wasn't a very smart racer. I would kind of just go hard from the start and, you know, try to win from the front. And, and when it got too hard though, you know, a lot of times I just, you know, I got passed and, but it did kind of, it set the stage for me. And, and then, on a on a much more serious note, you know, in during college when my as you as you know my story, you know, my, my life sort of started to spin out of control with drugs and alcohol, I used running as a a means of not only sort of being in shape, you know, when I wasn't drunk, but also to in a way that I guess to punish myself you know, to a certain degree, you know, I sort of learned that, you know, I beat up my body in the bars for a couple of days and then I'd go hit the track and I would run as hard as I could for as long as I could until I, you know, puked in the bushes and, and, uh, it wasn't a, 
it wasn't a good way to, you know, to do it, but it's what I had at the time. And, and running became the thing that I always turned to when I wanted to get better. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I think, you you know, that it is a major part of your story, um, you know, your battle with, with drugs and alcohol. And I think that it's important to note that it didn't just happen. Like it wasn't – you didn't wake up one day and, and all of a sudden you're an alcoholic. And from what I understand – and for, through my experience, even with sport in Australia, there's this culture of drinking. So you know you, you're drinking with your teammates, and you're you're getting at you know getting it after it after a game and after trainings and things like that. And it becomes a culture. And I've seen people suffer from the addiction because of that. But you know, going to college and being a part of a college, there's a culture of drinking there too, and binge drinking and and drinking at an early age. So I'm imagining that that's how you got your start in your career of being a, an addict. Hundred percent, you know, and I and I on a little deeper note, you know, I got to school at UNC Chapel Hill, and you know, I had good grades in high school, and I played the sports, and I dated cheerleaders, and you know, I think I was I was reasonably well liked, and all of that, and I got to Carolina, and I I I think uh, I felt that I was special, you know, like I had been treated as somebody who was special in high school and you get to Carolina and like there's 4,000 other freshmen who basically had the exact same resume that I did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, and I didn't, I, I've just, whatever my own particular brand of, um, insecurity and environment and my, I was a fourth generation addict. And I think all of these things kind of conspired that as soon as I really had the freedom to drink and behave any way I liked, because I, there wasn't anybody watching over me, you know, my, my natural tendency toward addiction just took over. And, and that's, that's who I became. And, and for a little while in college, it, it sort of just became my identity. You know, I became the guy who was strangely admired for the sheer volume of beer I could drink, for example, you know, I mean, I could just drink more than most people. And, and that's, of course, not something to aspire to. I know that now. But at the time, I, I took what I could get. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I, and I do think the culture of drinking with the team and, you know, I joined the fraternity my second year in college. And so that's a culture of drinking for sure. And, you know, it's accepted. And so I, whether I did it consciously or subconsciously, I I put myself in a position where my behavior was uh, condoned and even encouraged. And so, you know, I was comfortable. I sort of hid in that, you know, for a while. Mm -hmm. And in in college, the thing is, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my friends were serious about college, but they also drank and partied, but they, they drew the line, um, and it's not a cocaine pun, but they drew the line like uh, at, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, you know, they actually went to bed and they got up and went to class the next day and I didn't. And so, you know, eventually my, you know, my college career was pretty, pretty well doomed, probably doomed from the start. I just didn't know it. Yeah. I have a couple of questions. The first one is you mentioned a, you know, a fourth generation addict. Were you aware of what that kind of meant in the, um, you know, the repercussions that could have or the, the repercussions of, of what your your family had experienced through that addiction? Or is it just something that kind of, you know, oh, they're an addict and you didn't really understand what that meant? 
Yeah, I definitely was not aware at the time. I mean, because, you know, there, there just wasn't that kind of knowledge of generational addiction. And I, I knew that both, look, I knew my dad drank too much, you know, for sure. And, um, you know, my mother was a, an artist, a writer and in the theater. And so her drinking was masked a little more just in lifestyle, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was a business guy. And so, you know, his stood out a little bit more to me, but, you know, and I, and I heard stories of others in my family. I didn't actually like witness, you know, others, but I, yeah, I just had other people in the family that I was directly related to that I knew had problems with alcohol and, and, um, you know, it, it did sort of sink in. It sort of became this like, Hey, well, you know, this family, you know, drinks too much. And, and, uh, but I had no clue that it was going to like really be a lifelong battle. I mean, at that point, as a young person, you think you can overcome anything just by sheer will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took a few years before I realized that, you know, it wasn't going to go away on its own. I wasn't going to grow out of it <laughs> yeah. the way some people do. You know, instead, I was growing into it. And I think it, you know, it's probably safe to say that it, it got bad pretty quickly for you you know the the beer turned into you know harder drugs and tell me about that kind of journey um you know not to glorify it but i think it's important to have people understand you know how you got from point a to to point z so to speak yeah well you know what's interesting in college and i I, it's funny i just had this conversation a couple days ago because i was um I was with a guy who who uh, knows one of my college friends really well. And because in, in college, I reached the point where, you know, I was doing coke every day and I was actually dealing coke. But in college, you don't you, you think you're immune, almost like the laws don't apply to you. So, <clears throat> you know, I was just it wasn't like I was standing on the corner selling cocaine. I was, you know, I was selling it to friends and the only reason I was selling it was so that I could have more to do for myself. So there was no, there was no greater business plan. I just already figured out, okay, this is expensive. I can't afford it. So here's how I can do more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and ultimately a fraternity brother of mine actually called my father, which again, imagine the, the nerve that it takes, you know, to call a parent, um, on a friend of yours, um, who is clearly struggling, but I was, you know, I was a mess, you know, my, my dad didn't know it, but I stopped going to class, you know, the last semester when I finally left school, you know, I, I didn't go to a class for three months, you know, I just was there in college and, you know, I knew that that wasn't sustainable. I knew I was going to be asked pretty soon to, uh, you know, (laughs) go live somewhere else. And, and, uh, and that's what happened. You know, that's what happened. The, the, my friend called my dad, my dad basically just showed up out of nowhere. And of course I was pissed off and, you know, uh, just floored that, that there's my dad standing there and I'm just a disaster. And, you know, and he took me, he was living in Seattle at the time and he took me to Seattle and, you know, and that's where the next phase really began. You know, I began this long pattern for 10 years of, I'd, I'd move somewhere new. I'd get a job. I would do really well. Like I was a, I was a person that wanted to be liked and wanted to excel. And so, 
you know, I become the top salesperson or whatever. And I'd find a, you know, a cute girlfriend and I'd, <clears throat> I'd start running and get in shape and that would last for a few months. And, you know, one day I'd wake up and life would be good. And I'd be like, wow, this is great. You know? So you know, surely a couple of beers I've earned that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, you know, the rest of the story, those two beers would turn into to 10, maybe not the first day, but, you know, eventually that path leads to everything that I did before. And six months later, I'm having to pack up my shit and leave town and go somewhere else and do it all over again. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that same lather, rinse, repeat uh, cycle happened, you know, half a dozen times in California, Washington, and uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and North Carolina. And I just, you know, I just bounced around and, and in early, in that early phase of addiction and, and not understanding, you know, I, I thought somehow that my problems were environmental and I still wasn't smart enough to figure out that, that I was carrying the problem with me from place to place. And what did, uh, what prompted your lowest moment or what was your lowest moment where you said, all right, enough's enough. This, this has to change. Well, what's funny is any addict, any, uh, as I jokingly say, any self-respecting addict has lots of lows on the way to the bottom. And, you know, you, you think, you know, you wake up or you find yourself in some friggin' crack house or some stranger's, you know, bedroom or God knows what. And you're thinking, okay, it can't get any worse than this. I've, I've got to do something about it. But most of the time doing something about it meant like, going home, putting on my running shoes, you know, drinking water, getting healthy, you know, and a week later, I'd feel like I feel fantastic, right? Because I'm, you know, I was, I was doing so much drugs and drinking that, that just a week of clean living would make me feel uh, invincible. And so the whole cycle would repeat again. So what it, what it really took for me and I went through treatment when I was 26 and I stayed sober for probably six months at that time and relapsed and spent two more years, you know, smoking crack and killing myself. And um, the birth of my first son is really what changed everything for me. And <laughs> anybody listening to this would think, oh, isn't that great? Like he took responsibility. Well, it's not that simple. You know, I, he was born and I was like, okay. I'm, I'm holding this baby and I'm feeling love and affection from him and for him that I've never felt before. Like as an addict, I just didn't think that I was capable of it or that I was entitled to it. And so I'm having these amazing feelings and I'm like, surely this is it. You know, I'm going to stay sober for him. And, you know, it worked for a little while. And a couple of months later, I found myself, you know, in the worst part of town, sitting on the ground outside a, a dumpy motel room, and I'm watching the police search my car, and I'd, I'd been on a six-day binge. You know, I hadn't slept. I hadn't eaten. Uh, I was a disaster. There were bullet holes in my car because, you know, some drug deal had gone bad, and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I, I, the crazy as it is in that, like, um, very fuzzy moment I had the clearest thought I'd ever had and that was that you know my son can't save me and like nobody's coming to save me like I have to save myself and that night I went to an AA meeting for the first time ever like I meant like I went with purpose Mm -hmm. and the next morning I put on my running shoes and 
I went for a really short, painful run and, and I could barely make it around the block. And, you know, but I committed to do those two things every day. And I didn't know for how long, but ultimately for three straight years, I went to a meeting and I ran every single day without missing a day. And I, I slowly began to build a life for myself. And how does your son react to hearing this? I know, you know, you get to spend some time and they're a little bit, both of your sons are a little bit older now, but what's his kind of take on, on your story and your journey and, you know, how those first few months and years played out in his life? Well, so it's a great question because, you know, again, the, the, the addiction didn't stop at the fourth generation. So my older son, you know, is a, is a recovering addict and, despite the fact that he grew up in a, in a household that was essentially his mom drank a glass of wine here and there, but he essentially it was a sober household. And, um, and yet, you know, when he was a teenager, he began to experiment and, and I told him, you know, early on, but you know what a parent know, right? So I told him like, you know, look, if you decide to go down this road, it's probably not going to go well. And, you know, and sure enough, you know, he ultimately started showing signs of addiction pretty early on. And it took him, you know, it took him 10 years of, of struggle. And I mean, I, as a parent, as a sober parent, I actually had to let my son go. You know, I had to understand that he was no different than any other addict out there in the world. He just happened to be my son. And as much as I wanted to save him, just like he couldn't save me, the only way he was ever going to get better was when he made the decision that he had had enough. And, you know, young people these days, which is, I, I swore I'd never utter sentences like <laughs> young people these days, but here I am, you know, unfortunately for them, a lot of the drugs that they're doing experimentally, you know, heroin and fentanyl and, and some of these things are, are deadly, you know, the first time they use it. And so many of them are, are not surviving even the first few months of their, you know, their drug use. Whereas, you know, back when I was doing it, at least I had this sort of long, slow ramp up of, of drinking beer and maybe smoking a little weed and then, you know, Coke and then, you know, it, it progressed. And I at least understood a little bit about my own nature, you know, and at 18 or 19 years old, these kids, they just don't, they don't know anything about themselves yet. And they're putting, you know, drugs that the wrong combination can kill them anytime. And it's, it's, it's why it's so devastating. But so to answer your question, I mean, interestingly, my son, you know, was proud of me for being sober, yet couldn't stop himself. Mm. And, and I will tell you a weird, I mean, it's funny, we started this conversation talking about Michael Jordan, and this mm. didn't come out until years later from my son, you know, when he was when he was finally, you know, really serious about sobriety and in a very deep conversation we were having you know he actually <laughs> he told me that he considered me to be you know the michael jordan of addiction recovery wow. and his his point was that as a son he felt like my kind of sobriety was unachievable for him you know and and i'm a very public person about my sobriety so sometimes i think my my sobriety looks 
different than other people's maybe, but it's, but it's completely the same. And I struggle with the same issues everybody else does. And every once in a while, I think how nice it would be to slide back into, you know, oblivion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though I know that's not true, but, you know, the brain does what it does. And yeah. And then, and then there's the case of my younger son who, you know, he's just a normal guy for the most part. You know, he doesn't, he can, he can smoke a joint or drink a beer and like, he doesn't disappear for a week when he does it. And, um, you know, that's genetics, right? Because I mean, I, I great, they, they were both raised the same. They're raised in the same household with the same understanding of what addiction might be like. And, and there's just no stopping it, man. You know, it's going to do what it's going to do. And a person has to come to their own place of acceptance and decision before anything can change. Um, how hard was it for you to watch him and, and let him go? And, you know, he, he has to do his own thing and find his own way and through it. But that, as a parent, must be torture. I mean, it was awful. Because, I mean, when I say I had to let him go, I mean, I mean that I accepted the fact that he was not going to survive. Like, that's, that's how serious it was. You know, the places he was going, the drugs he was doing, the, you know, and, and I mean, you, you, you can't. <laughs> you know, you could try to like have your kids, you know, have or a loved one, you know, committed to a psychiatric ward. You can like, there's all kinds of things you can try to do. But the fact of the matter is none of that is going to help until that person wants to make a change, like really wants to change. And so, you know, I, I you know, what's funny is, and, and this is a, I haven't talked about this in years, but one of the things in early sobriety, one of my very first sponsors used to do an exercise with me that I thought was just like masochistic and I hated him for it, but he would essentially, he would force me to imagine the worst things that could happen in my life. Like to take a few minutes and like, think about what are the worst things that could happen. And of course my mind would go to, you know, something terrible happening to my kids or whatever it might be. And he would, and then he would say, okay, would you go get drunk because of it? You know? And, and he would force me to kind of sit in this idea of like, is there something that could happen out there that would act that that somehow drinking would make it better or that would force me back into addiction. And, you know, and it actually ended up being a really useful exercise because, you know, I allowed myself to to think about and sit in those awful moments of what if. And, you know, most of us don't do that, you know, because it's too uncomfortable. Like, it's just mm-hmm. too awful to think about the worst things that could happen in our lives and how we would handle it. And so, you know, interestingly, with my, you know, with, with my older son, I, I had already thought about it. You know, in years past, I'd already thought, okay, what if, you know, what if something happens and like they're gone? Like, would I drink? Would I get drunk? And, and A, I knew it wouldn't help anything, but B, I also knew it would dishonor, you know, them and my commitment to sobriety. And, you know, this, as you and I have already talked, Travis, my, my, you know, I'm on this journey, just like all of us of, of serious highs and lows and like life is this is this long roller coaster of, of uh, peaks and valleys. And, you know, we all have to find a way to kind of navigate that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and for me, I figured out a long time ago that 
drinking and, and drugs just don't, they, they don't, they aren't going to help me. So I'll get the question sometimes, you know, couldn't you just have one beer? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I could probably today just have one beer, like, because it would take a lot of determination, but I just have one. Now, maybe I could do that tomorrow. Maybe I could, I might be able to do that for a whole year, mm-hmm. but there would be a day where I would have two beers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eventually. And and that too would then lead to five. And you know, and then I mean it might even happen the very first time I did it. But but the point is that I'm able to project out, you know, what is where is this going to lead me? And then also what does it do for me? How would it enhance my life? And you know, for me personally, there's just no you know, I have no trouble getting together with friends and being in social situations and like going and doing all the things that people where people usually drink. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, the thought of doing them, you know, not fully present is actually um, very strange now. Like I'm I'm more about being fully present and I'd rather be there. And, and once, uh, you know, <laughs> if it's a party and the, and the real drinking starts, you know, at midnight, then that's usually when I just sneak on back to my hotel room and that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, as you mentioned, you know, the, the one beer and you'll be fine is that's not the point, right? It's, you know, you're, you've committed to this and you're, you're making a stand for yourself, but you're probably also making a stand for people you've never met before who, you know, have heard your message or uh, understand or relate to your message and have made positive changes in, in their lives. So, you know, kudos to you for standing in it and, and sharing it. And I'm sure you're helping a lot of people who you don't even know that you're changing their lives. So good job. Well, I appreciate you saying it that way. And, and I will say too, that it is my, you know, it, it's, it's so a part of who I am now. Yeah. Like I, like if I could, I, if I could take a pill or something and all of a sudden not be an addict, like I would never take it because this is kind of like who I am. And, and interestingly, even the, even the hard and difficult things in our lives, if we embrace them, you know, whatever it is for each individual, it, it becomes a part of who we are. And I mean, it's part of my humor. Even I, I laugh at the just, twisted idiotic things I used to do when I when I drank and drugged and and they you know telling those stories of struggle I've realized any story of struggle not just in addiction but any story of struggle that we share with others ultimately hits a mark with a handful of people that makes a difference in their lives because they realize they're not you know they're not the only one having those feelings and and I think that's a I encourage everybody and and you know to share their struggle because somebody out there can use your knowledge Mm -hmm. well i think that's a bit you know that's why i created inner voice in the first place was to be able to share those human stories of athletes too often we hear the glory stories of how someone you know stands on the on the podium in a major event or you know they talk about the support the sponsors they have but there's no substance to it so i love the ability to talk to people like yourself and share those human stories and the mindset that goes into being a high performer or a weekend warrior someone who's doing their first 5k could probably learn something from from listening to this conversation um which is you know i think it's probably a good segue to 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 move into talking about your running and he, I I don't know if you know John Joseph and uh, he's a you know he's a, a former addict he was a uh, still is a musician and he's got a really interesting story very similar to yours um and I questioned him and I said 
you know, you just basically traded one addiction for another and not in a negative way, but in a positive way, really. And what I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of your um, ability to suffer and to do the things you've done in running is probably due to having that addictive personality where you're able to put yourself in that position to be addicted to running and transfer that over in a positive way. Well, man, that is what John said is great. And, and I appreciate the question because it is a funny thing. Even early on in my sobriety, and I'm comfortable saying this, you know, when people said to me occasionally, you know, didn't you just switch addictions? It was not a compliment. Mm -hmm. um, and there is this, you know, I love reminding people now, especially sober groups, that, you know, misery loves company. And, and the human... I don't know why, but human nature is such that, you know, if people see someone else doing something to an extreme and being successful at it, they are, they're still likely to somehow call it out as being unhealthy. And it's just a weird thing. And then in the, in the drug world, you know, I, I can remember when I first got sober, you know, people would come to me and they'd say, Hey, you know, I'm talking about my addict friends, my party friends, they'd come and say, you know, you don't need to quit, you know, like you just need to slow down. You need to just get this under control. And it took me a while to realize that, you know, the reason they were saying that is of course, the last thing they wanted was for me to get sober because mm -hmm. then they might actually have to take a look at themselves, <laughs> yep. you know, because they were the guys I was out drinking and partying with. They didn't want to lose their party buddy. And they also didn't want to be forced to say, Hey, what about my behavior? And, you know, and it took, I think, you know, this for the first three years where I ran every day, I also ran like 30 marathons in that period of time. Like I ran, I ran like a madman and every single time I laced them up and went out for training or racing, I ran as hard as I possibly could every single time. And, and some of it was this idea of, of like punishment, I think, mm -hmm. um, somehow paying, paying a toll for my behavior for years. But, but also I think I hoped that I would get rid of the addict. Like I, I thought maybe I could just pound this guy out of me mm. and that my addiction would no longer be there. And it took those three years to understand that, yes, I had switched addictions, but the fact of the matter is my addict was all the best parts of me. Mm. Like without my addictive nature, I wouldn't be good at anything. Uh, you know, I mean, it is what drives me. So if I can take my nature and actually point it towards positive things, the power of that is huge. So addicts don't need to like change. They need to change behaviors, obviously, and they need to change triggers and mechanisms. But, um, you know, addiction is about being invisible and addiction is about having no feeling and disappearing. Whereas running is the exact opposite. Mm. Anybody who's ever done a 29029 event or has run a marathon knows there is nowhere to hide. Like <laughs> you have no choice but to be fully present in your pain and discomfort and to feel everything. Mm. So it couldn't be more opposite to, you know, what addiction is. And so you know, again, the, the, the switching addictions, I mean, my other joke is actually that I never, you know, I never lost my car at the end of a long run. Mm. 
Mm. <laughs> um, but I damn sure lost it after plenty of, you know, binges. <laughs> well, you just haven't, ru- you haven't run far enough then, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the funny thing. My wife will remind me that, yes, I probably have lost probably my car have. after a run because I, I occasionally have a terrible sense of direction. So, um, you know, but, uh, but the story's better if I say I've never lost my car at the end of a run. So, yeah, you know. I love that. And I think one, yeah. one thing you mentioned there, and I, I have spoken to a lot of high performance. And I think there is there is this level of obsession that someone needs to have to be able to perform at the highest level, whether it's in business, whether it's in sport, whatever it might be. There has to be this level of obsession, which I think comes with an addictive personality or obsessive personality. Mm-hmm. Totally. No, and I mean, again, who... Name me one person at 29029, because there's a lot of very successful business people and successful in a lot of ways and people just, you know, searching for new paths. I mean, you're talking about people with obsessive qualities. Uh, You know, society has a way of talking about balance as being important. And I don't I'm not disputing the fact that there needs to be some balance in your life. But anybody, every single person I've ever known that's been truly successful um, has had at least a period of significant obsession, whether it's in business, in sports, in family, in whatever it is. And, you know, you're, you're not going to become who you really are meant to be without a certain level of obsession and just sort of diving into that yeah. and, you know, and, and embracing it even and just saying, okay, this is who I am right now. And, you know, it might not work forever, but hopefully when the time comes, when it becomes obvious, I need to make a change, then I'll make a change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, sometimes that, that imbalance is what leads to success. And, you know, over time things change, priorities change. Yeah. Well, we're, yeah, we're built to make, you know, when, when the pain gets bad enough, we shift and adjust. And what I think one of the tricks in life is figuring out, is this pain worth the result? And of course, that's the question we ask ourselves. And, and so often we get mired in some really difficult, hard situation, and we stay stuck in that place because we think if we just do it a little bit longer, that, that it will suddenly work out you know we're 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 hard-headed most of us and certainly addicts are and we we stay with things for too long but um you know eventually the pain rules and we figure out that we you know how we need to change and sometimes the change is forced upon us but one way or the other you know we change Mm -hmm. Now, if we put a full stop on it there, I think that, you know, and you start running and that's a great story in itself, but there's plenty more chapters to Charlie Engel that I want to, I want to talk about. Um, now take me back 12 years. Um, the project for running the Sahara comes out, um, you know, to good and bad reviews and interesting, um, conversations around that particular project. But all in all, uh, what you did through that project and through that movie was create something really meaningful and special. Do you want to share with me a little bit more about that particular project and kind of what became of that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I know I can keep it fairly brief, but I mean, I, in, in short, as a, and I relate it to addiction, you know, as an addict, I, I ran 
dozens and dozens of marathons and then started running 50s and hundreds and like this sort of general idea of, well, if, if this much is good, then a whole lot more should be fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to see just how far I could go. And the Sahara uh, came about, you know, I was doing another event, a race in um, the Amazon jungle and a guy just kind of blurted out, I wonder if anybody's ever run across the Sahara desert. And, and like many ideas that, that actually come to us seemingly out of nowhere, um, they come from the lips of a stranger. Um, I just started the research and I found out no one had ever done it before. And I started telling people that I was going to be the first person to run across the Sahara Desert. And uh, I was working as a, a producer for a TV show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition at the time. And, um, I knew a guy there who was pretty connected in Hollywood and he introduced me to a, an Academy award winning director. Um, that guy knew Matt Damon. And so like literally, and, and I always tell people, you know, own your story, own your narrative, tell people what you want to do. And if you put it out there in the universe, you know, sometimes something will come out of it, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll find its own path. And, you know, and so, Matt Damon and James Mall agreed to be part of this project. So I've got two Academy Award winners attached. And and look, I never I never set out to make a film. That was never my purpose. I'm I'm just a guy that wanted to see if I could run across the Sahara Desert. Mm-hmm. But it was going to be far beyond my financial needs uh, means, and I wasn't able to. You know, there's no way I could pay for that project out of my pocket. So I needed sponsors. I mean, mean, most people who do big expeditions have sponsors. And so I was no different there. I needed sponsors. I needed, you know, and here I scored um, a couple of big names Mm -hmm. to come along on this journey. And, and, um, you know, interestingly, a year later, there I am on the coast of Senegal, uh, surrounded, getting ready to start an almost 5,000 mile run. And I'm surrounded by excited people and teammates and there's three of us doing this run together and, and, um, film crews. And, you know, all I can think is, you know, they're all excited. And all I can think is, you know, I've like suckered all of these people out here to the Sahara and and we're all going to die. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's, it was this crazy feeling because I had no idea if this was possible, but of course, anybody who asked me, I would say, yeah, hundred percent is possible. Mm-hmm. Especially if it was a sponsor. Yeah. If a friend asked me, I usually said, hell no, I have no idea. How would I know? There's no, <laughs> no one's you know, done it. this yeah. isn't right. This isn't the Appalachian trail. You know, this isn't, you, you can't go to Barnes and Noble and find five books to read about this. Like there's mm-hmm. no way. And, you know, and so we set off on this journey and, and you alluded to something and I'll, I'll, I'll keep this brief, but, you know, you alluded to, you know, the film is so much different than what actually happened because the, the film is 90 minutes taken from 500 hours of, of shooting. And, you know, it's the imagination of a very creative editor who wanted to have conflict like in the film. And so ironically, anybody who ever sees the film comes away with a couple of, you know, different feelings. One, 
that I'm the most, I'm the toughest, most heroic guy ever, or two, I'm the biggest asshole in the world. And, and maybe it's a combination of those two things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what's funny is it's so, so much of it is so out of context. It's, it's like reality TV. You know, you could take, you could take 10 sentences out of almost anybody's mouth and turn it into conflict and something negative. And, uh, which is part of the reason I wrote my book, mm -hmm. you know, running man, the, the, the book that Simon and Schuster published a couple of years ago goes into much greater detail on the Sahara. And, and look, I want to be clear about this. You know, you've, you've seen the film, I think, mm -hmm. and I am not, under any circumstances, am I saying that I'm not ever an asshole? Because I absolutely am. It's part of my hard charging, you know, makeup. But what I tell people is, you know, imagine if you had a camera following you every minute of every day for four months while you did the hardest physical thing that you've ever done. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to manage, you know, 50 people. Um, on a project in the middle of the wilderness and, you know, and, and, you know, what I lost was the ability to have any kind of a buffer. Like if I got pissed about something, I went from zero to a hundred in a second because <laughs> there were, you know, in normal life, yeah, you know, normal life, a guy cuts you off in traffic, you know, assuming nothing bad has happened up to that point in your day, it's probably like, man, what a jerk. Yeah. You know, but, but by the third time he does that, you're like, son of a thing, you know, you're chasing the guy down in traffic so that you can flip him off or something. You know, it's just, in society, <laughs> See if they're watching we the have camera a... of me driving then. You've, you've seen the footage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've seen you. I've seen you. You know, and, and in life, we all have kind of a, you know, most of us have a slow buildup of that kind of thing. We recognize it's not that important. And in the desert, I lost that ability to, to kind of, uh, you know, moderate that. And so... So look, long story short, with the Sahara, the thing I'm most proud of is that three of us, me and my two teammates, all three made it nearly 5,000 miles across the Sahara. And we ran two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days without taking a single day off. Unbelievable. And, you know, the physical stress we were under, I would argue that there's never ever been another expedition where three people covered that much ground in such difficult conditions and all three made it from one end to the other, you know, and there was a camera every step of the way. And, and again, I became the, uh, both the hero and the villain. I also though, Travis say this, you know, I think this is the truth. What impression people come away with very often is dependent upon their lives, not mm -hmm. mine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you grew up with, if you're a firefighter or a policeman or we're in the military or any of those things, I get like unbelievably nice notes from people in authority about how they understand how difficult it can be to, to be the one that's in charge and the one that has to uh, make the decisions and that they would never have wanted a camera to be present <laughs> yeah. during during the times when they were going to chastise, you know, a subordinate. Yeah. Well, for, for um, me, know, what I took from it is, you know, and I think about you see someone who's running a marathon and they're 30 Ks in, they're two hours into a marathon and they're shouting at kids and volunteers to pass them order. And like it becomes this, 
<laughs> you know, there, there, there's no yeah. reason. Like, there's <laughs> they're in a bad mood, or they're like heightened, and there's a heightened sense of excitement, and um, you know, and in yeah. those moments, and they're the kindest, most you know, care caring people. They finish the race, yep. and they're, you know, the first to say sorry. But in those moments of high stress, people react differently. And then I think the other thing that I took from from watching that with you, Charlie, was that a lot of times it was. You know, you have to be stern with people when you're running that long or in the middle of things like that and you sit down and all you want to do is sit down and you don't want to move again. You're not going to be nice and say, okay, take your time. We'll take another five minutes because all of a sudden five minutes turns into five hours and you have to be like, no, get out of it, get your ass off the chair and let's keep moving. And it's, you know, and I, I think you're right. Like people can take their own impression from it. And with that in mind, like, you know, has that led to a bunch of misconceptions that you kind of have to feel like you have to justify over time? Or have you gotten closer to the point where you're like, you know, take what you want from the movie and this is the reality and this is my truth? Man, yeah, that's such an astute question because, again, the um, I'll address one final thing in the film, though, you know, towards the end and probably the thing I get the most, this was the the, the the teetering point or the tipping point, I should actually say is, you know, towards the end, it appears that I like leave my teammates um, in the last day. And it's this totally made up, completely fabricated thing where we are separated by a few miles. But, um, you know, you see in the film when they do finally catch me up, uh, I am moving at about a 15 minute per mile pace, a little death shuffle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just trying, you know, the, the director, James Mall earlier in the day had said, look, you guys can't finish, you know, a four month project at night. Like mm-hmm. I need you to make it to the, to the red sea in the daylight. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm just trying to get us there. I'm trying to pull these other two guys to the finish. And I always say that if I'd wanted to leave them, I had about a hundred chances to do it, you know, before then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why would I drag them to the very end and then leave them on the last day? It just made no sense. But the way the film was put together, so that, you know, that's the thing. It probably more than anything, you know, I am a sensitive person, despite what you know some might think. And so it hurt my feelings that anybody thought that I would possibly leave, you know, my teammates. I'd sacrifice so much. So that's the misconception. I think that I, um, we live in a world where people make their decisions almost instantaneously and they're so deeply embedded that nothing I can ever do will change their minds. Yeah. And so, you know, I, so I have learned through the years to just kind of let that go and, um, you know, and just not, not stress about it. You know, some, you know, what's funny is we now have, you know, guys like, um, you know, Gary V and, and David Goggins and some people who basically do nothing. And I'm not giving them a hard time. I'm just saying stylistically, they spend all their time basically yelling F-bombs at you. <laughs> and like somehow that's motivational for people. Mm. It's for me, it's not motivational at all. Like I, I don't even understand that whole thing, but, but there's a, you know, there's a, there's a thing that, that people respond to, I guess. And mm-hmm. I would also say in the film too, like Kevin, who was my Taiwanese friend and Ray, they were very different. Like Ray, I needed to motivate in one way, but Kevin, if I like yelled at Kevin, like he was, he was such a sweet, like puppy almost like I would, uh, he was such a nice man that, you know, to yell at him would have been very counterproductive. So I needed to like, I needed to treat him in a different way 
some people need to be, you know, to be motivated. Some people like actually to be yelled at. It's a very strange thing, but um, I don't respond that well. But, um, you know, so the Sahara really led to like all kinds of things in my life, both good and bad. I, I kind of call it the linchpin of my adult life. And the best thing, I, I do have to say this very briefly, the best thing about it is that, you know, together with Matt Damon, I co-founded H2O Africa. And H2O Africa today is known as water.org. And, you know, water.org is the world's largest clean water nonprofit um, with a couple billion dollars in funding. And, you know, and it all came out of a crazy idea that for some reason running across the Sahara would be a valuable thing to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that's the thing I encourage people to remember is that you don't know where something's going to go. And that's the whole point of exploration, exploration. And it's because people ask me why all mm. the time, like, why do you, why do this? Why do that? I'm like, I don't know why. Mm. I don't know why, but life tells me that if I go off and I do these hard things and I just, I just make the decision to go do it, then the, the reasons why actually become apparent all on their own, but, but usually not until later. Well, one thing that it's, I'm, I'm glad you were able to kind of get that part out as well, because I think that's important for people to know is, you know, there's a bigger purpose to all of this. And through your exploration, you're able to change many lives. And through telling your story, you're able to change many lives. So there's this consistent storytelling and legacy that you're able to leave. But you as a person, and I'm, I want to kind of get into your psyche a little bit about that experience, you know, take away the movie, take away the producers and the cameras you can't take away the fact that you crossed the Sahara Desert on two feet with two other people and that you'll never lose that memory. No, and that's the, that's all I wanted. Like, in hindsight, I look smart in a way, right? I look like a philanthropist. I look like I did this and I did that. All I wanted to do, Travis, was to see if I was capable of crossing the Sahara Desert. Yeah. That's all I wanted to do. And, and, my wife is actually, you know, she's, she's pointed out about me that I'm not a person that I don't dwell on the past. Like I don't, I talk about the Sahara a fair amount because people ask, but mm. if somebody doesn't ask me, I'm so done with that. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm so much more interested in what I'm doing today or what I'm doing, you know, next week, next year. Um, the things I've done don't hold any weight for me. The, you know, what excites me and keeps me going are the projects that are still in the works and the ones that I'm, that I'm getting to. And so it is this, you know, it, going way back in my, in my, uh, marathon running, I used to give myself a hard time because I'd be running a marathon and I mean, I'd be at the 20 mile mark and I'm not kidding you. I would already be thinking about my next marathon, mm. you know, like a few <laughs> weeks later. And, yeah. and it was just so like my addict brain just wouldn't slow down. Like I had a hard time being present. And, and some of that was because I just felt worthless. You know, I didn't feel that I had value. And so my value was tied up in my accomplishments. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. Like if I wasn't doing something, then somehow I wasn't valuable. And it's, you know, I'm 57 years old now, so it's taken a while to get to this point, but I'm in a place now where I, yes, I recognize the value of the things that I've done. And I also recognize the excitement I still have on the things that I'm trying to do and that I want to do. 
but I'm completely comfortable with my place in the world, like who I am today. Uh, the fact that as a recovering addict, I get to help a lot of people in addiction or people who want to be sober. Um, I get to help new runners start their first 5k or run their first hundred miler. Um, like I've got it. I'm, I've got a dream situation as far as I'm concerned because I'm comfortable with my story. And, and again, I think people relate to the struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, I've gotten really comfortable with saying this is, you know, here's the things that I still need to work on and I'll say it out loud. And, you know, here's why I'm still insecure. Here's why I get depressed. Here's, you know, here's all these things. And, and, and people respond to that. Mm. Well, I think it's a, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's not really about the destination. It's more about the journey. And I think that you know, creating these projects and creating this personality, um, you know, and sharing your story is really the destination. But there's so much that goes into it that is valuable in your own life. And you're not a caricature of yourself. You're a real human being. So going for a run with your sons yesterday or getting to, put on your shoes and do a, a, you know, a trail run to clear your head or come up with big ideas for your next project. Like that's real life. It's not what you see on, on film. It's not what you see on social media. It's what you experience day to day that, you know, only you are privy to how you feel in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you said that beautifully and I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I, I always say, you know, we, we all go around comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we lay how we feel up against how other people look. And most of us come up short, you know, most of us don't, don't measure up to our impression of how other people are and how they look. And, and that's the, that's the thing that we all have to work on is to understand that we, you know, we're the only ones that can feel our deepest feelings and, um, generally speaking, everybody's fighting the same battles yeah. <laughs> internally. They, they may not be fighting them externally. And, you know, the things that people have that I don't like, you know, if someone's got more money than me, which is pretty much everybody, uh, you know, then, you know, there's, there's insecurity that comes from that. And there's want sometimes. And I'm, I'm at a point though, where I've recognized that, you know, that's just a, that's the way it is for everybody. Hopefully mm -hmm. there's something I have that, you know, maybe they see and they, they wish they had. And I think that's the case with all of us. Yeah. Well, it's not in the expectations that other people have. It's the expectations of what you think other people want you to have. And it's uh, at the end of the day, no one really cares. Everyone's got their own shit. Everyone's dealing with their own <laughs> shit. No one actually cares. That is so funny. <laughs> and, it's, and you're absolutely right, man, because it's, it, it is, I, I say it all the time, you know, we care so much more deeply about ourselves than we do about others. And that's not a slight against us as people. It's just a human condition, man. How, how could we not, yeah. you know, and, and the beauty of, of recovery and the beauty of running, I think these are two, they're so closely related is that it gives the opportunity for self-evaluation. You know, I, I do think that most people who, who don't run or don't have some kind of therapy in their lives in some way, um, rarely take a hard look at how they actually feel or, you know, at, at doing, you know, self 
self-help, self-love type of activities. And, you know, it sounds crazy to some people, but I I say it all the time. You know, some of the most self-loving things that I can do are to run a hundred miles. Like, because I, I get in the, in the, or to do 29029. I mean, going up that mountain, going up and down Stratton Mountain gave me the opportunity to be social with other people, to be also alone with myself and my thoughts, um, to kind of purge everything else from my life for 36 hours and be like fully present. And that's the, man, that is the gift of not only that event, but just running in general. So once again, Charlie, if we stopped it right there, we've talked about your addiction and overcoming that. We've talked about how running's helped you support that. We've talked about crossing the entire Sahara Desert. Put a full stop, story ends, crazy story. But there's more to come. And I know that, uh, you know, you and I have had a, a, a couple of good discussions and I'm really interested to talk to you about the kind of the next phase of your life. And when I first heard of your story, you know, the fact that you overcome addiction, um, the fact that you had been to jail, um, I had just assumed that it was, you know, one and the same. It all kind of happened around the same time and because of that. But definitely not the case. Um, I'd love for you to tell the story, um, you know, and, and don't have to go into detail of how it, how it happened, but I want to get into more of kind of your experience uh, of, of going to jail and being in prison because what, what a lot of people see um, or have an understanding of is what they see in the movies. And while some parts of it might be like that, it's definitely not exactly what you see in TV and in the movies. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that from you. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was a very uh, challenging time for, in my life and, and people would assume that that happened during my years of addiction. But in fact, you know, at... 19 years clean and sober, um, you know, the, the Sahara had been a couple of years before and like I, you know, really the Sahara put me on the map, you know, after the Sahara I was on Jay Leno and I was on the morning news shows on the major networks and NPR and I got speaking gigs and I got an agent and uh, you know, and brands were coming to me for, to offer me sponsorship deals, those kinds of things. So really I had, you know, the way I viewed it was, you know, the struggle had really been worth it, Mm -hmm. uh, through the years. And, you know, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't looking for, for fame or fortune out of it. I, I wanted to be in a situation where I could afford to continue to do the adventures I wanted to do. And, you know, and I did know that I enjoyed speaking. I enjoyed being on stage and speaking. And so I wanted more opportunities and I got them. <clears throat> and so um, flash forward a couple of years and the, uh, you know, I was really just out running errands one day. I'll just keep it simple. I'll run away errands one day and I came back to my condo building and I see a, uh, I see movement out of my left hand side and, uh, six armed federal agents came out of a coffee shop. Uh, I didn't know they were federal agents at the time, but, but six people came running towards me and, uh, handcuffed me and threw me in the back of a car and took me to jail and, you know, local jail in Greensboro, North Carolina. I really didn't know what was going on. I had no no real inkling of what was happening to me. And it wasn't until I spent the night 
you know, on a metal bench, uh, not knowing what was up. And I got up, I woke up the next morning. <laughs> Actually, I said I woke up. I'm sure I was awake all night. But, um, you know, and I was handed a, a stack of papers and I had called my, my local attorney and he came in and he was befuddled by what was happening. And long story short, um, it, it turns out that a local IRS agent in Greensboro, North Carolina, had opened an investigation into my taxes um, probably a year earlier. And, you know, and we would come to learn that he spent about 700 hours investigating my taxes. And I'd been self-employed forever and ultimately came up empty because yeah. I paid my taxes. <laughs> there was nothing there was nothing there. And instead of dropping it, and maybe it was because he'd invested so much time. Instead of dropping it, he dug deeper and found uh, a property that um, had been foreclosed upon uh, back in 2006. And and uh, it, you know during the, the height of the craziness as the mortgage meltdown took place, not just in the U.S. but around the world, mm-hmm. and this property had crashed and I let it go back to the bank. And, you know, ultimately he determined there was false information on the loan application. So I became basically the first person, only person, not about the first, but the only person at the time to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, uh, I could get 20 years in federal prison. And, um, you know, and, and look, I had spent 19 years clean and sober telling other people that you really don't know what you're made of until, until you lose everything, until everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> I had said that mostly from the standpoint of a drug addict and someone who, you know, who didn't have much of anything thanks to drugs. And now here I was all these years later, um, all, because just the accusation, just the arrest, meant that, uh, you know, the day after the arrest, I was removed from the two uh, nonprofit boards of the nonprofits that I helped to start. Mm-hmm. I was, um, I lost all sponsorship deals. I had seven speaking gigs, you know, canceled. Then these were high paying, you know, gigs mm-hmm. I had. So basically I lost, everything was gone just from the very first article in the newspaper saying that I'd been arrested. And, you know, and um, I made a decision that I was going to fight the charges because I was not guilty of what I was being accused of. And, you know, it felt like some sort of personal vendetta by this IRS agent. And, you know, I I was naive. I, I thought that you know, the truth mattered. And as it turns out, I would learn later that only about 2% of all federal cases go to trial because basically nobody ever wins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to win. You know, 99.4% of all federal cases end up in prison time. Oh, and, uh, you know, no, no monarchy or dictatorship or tribe, you know, in history, much less a democracy, convict its own people at the rate we do here in the United States. But at that point, I didn't care. I wasn't going to admit to something I hadn't done. And so I go to trial. I won't bore you with the details, but basically I am found not guilty of providing false information because I hadn't. 
mm-hmm. uh, but I'm found, but yet I'm found guilty of uh, mail fraud because I had signed a closing package of, of documents that contained false information. And even though I was not the one who put it there, it was put there by my mortgage broker who was already in prison. Um, you know, it didn't matter. I had attested to the information in the closing package. And for that, I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in Bethlehem, West Virginia. Unbelievable. So, you know, yeah, I have a... I have a ton of questions. Um, what was what were you thinking during that time? You know, what was your inner voice saying to you in those moments where you realize that you're going to be spending time in prison? And I'm I'm assuming, and I'm sure you probably had no idea what to expect. You know, you've seen movies and TV shows, and it you know dramatizes the whole experience. But what were you thinking? You know, when that sentence is handed yeah. down to you. Yeah, well, there were two phases. You know, number one, you know, things don't happen that quickly. So it took months to go to trial. And, of course, that was a very stressful time where I couldn't really do anything. I couldn't, you know, I had no speaking gigs. I had no income. Like, overnight, I had no income. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, kind of, I came to learn later, too, that's what made me such a great target. You know, you'll notice that in general, wealthy people don't get charged with federal crimes because they can afford to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. And I had just enough notoriety from the Sahara, you know, but no but no real money in the bank to defend myself. And so I I made for a good target during a time when uh, and look, I'm a lifelong Democrat and certainly was an Obama fan. And yet that administration was looking to blame somebody for this crazy mortgage meltdown that was going on. So all, all that's not what you asked me, but it was it plays into the big story of, of how this all <clears throat> worked. And once I was convicted, then I had 90 more days before um, I was actually sentenced. And the sentence could have been up to based on guidelines, I wasn't going to get 20 years, but there was a good chance I was going to get about six years. And, um, you know, that's what the sentencing guidelines called for. And very rarely do judges deviate from that. And so I, you know, I think that this judge understood that I was getting the shaft Mm -hmm. and that I was being blamed for something that, you know, quite literally more than 20 million Americans did during this time frame, I mean, during that time, if you had a pulse, you could get a mortgage. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that's not to, you know, that's not to excuse me or anyone else in those circumstances. But the fact is, I was being held accountable for something that was just pretty absurd. And so I got 21 months. And, you know, at that point, when I was sentenced, then I had another 90 days. So I was happy. I mean, it sounds strange to say I was happy about the sentence. It could have been much worse. But then I'm also stuck for a few more months before I actually report to prison. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so during that time, there's nothing to do. Like running kind of saves my life again, mm-hmm. because there's, there's no, you know, I can't work on anything. There's no way to make a plan for what my life is going to look like later. The only plan I can make is going to prison and trying to tidy up things. Uh, And so, you know, on Valentine's Day of all days, 2011, my two teenage boys uh, and a friend of mine actually dropped me off at the front gate of Beckley Federal Correctional Institute, you know, and tearfully I 
hugged my kids and I said goodbye. And, you know, I walked through the front gate of some place that I never imagined I would be. Mm-hmm. And certainly not as a sober person. And um, I walked through those doors and I was, I was um, scared and I was, uh, you know, I was sad about what was going on, but mostly I was pissed off. You know, mm-hmm. I was angry. And, you know, I, I knew that I didn't deserve to be there, but yet there I was. And it really only took a few days. And in fact, the first guy to show me around, you know, you almost felt like you got to find a person to kind of give you the, the scoop. And it was an inmate. Um, and his name was pick and roll (laughs) and pick and roll was, uh, you know, a short black dude who, uh, you know, who was actually from the area where I was from. And he showed me around. I'll never forget him asking me, you know what? He asked me a question that basically was, you know, what's your bid? Mm -hmm. And I had no idea of what the terminology meant. And I'm like, well, I don't know what you mean. And after asking me two more questions, he sort of frustratingly said, how long are you here? <laughs> yeah. And I said, I got, I got 21 months. And he looked at me, he turned and actually looked at me. He said, shit, that's not even enough time to unpack your bag. <laughs> and, you know, right away it began to put things in perspective. And, um, you know, later the next day, uh, I met the guy in the cell next to me who was, a uh, a 60 year old black man who had gotten 25 years for, you know, a drug offense that was similar to, you know, like drugs that I had had in my possession when I was a drug addict. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but I wasn't uh, a black guy, you know, I was a middle-class white guy driving a decent car back in those days and nobody ever stopped me. Mm. And sort of the realities of what, my situation were hit me pretty hard. And I realized that, that fair or unfair didn't matter anymore. Like I was in prison and I was going to be there for the next year and a half. And I had to figure out who I was going to be in this circumstance, or I just wasn't going to make it. Yeah. And I started running. So I did, I did. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know if this is what you're going to ask next, but I did what I always do. I started running and and whenever there was time to run out in the rec yard, that's what I did. And when there was, when we were on lockdown and couldn't leave ourselves, I ran in place sometimes for six or eight hours at a time in my cell. And, uh, you know, people thought I was nuts, mm-hmm. which might've been helpful, <laughs> very helpful in federal <laughs> prison. You know, if yeah. you're the middle aged white guy, you know, I mean, it basically meant that nobody bothered me because it was, they just, I was clearly too much trouble. Yeah. Um, you, you, there's no reason for you to know this and uh, not a lot of people do know this about me, but I, my dad was in corrections for 20 plus years when I was growing up. So he, you know, he worked in some of the toughest prisons in Australia and, um, and around the world, in fact, and I had the privilege and I call it a privilege of being able to actually go and spend time with him, um, when he was working, some of the jobs he worked, he was at, you know, in Australia, they call them prison farms where it's closer to release and they're trying to integrate you know inmates back into society and and teach them skills that will be useful once they are released and you know quite often we would go in there and they would you know there would be recreational leagues of touch football and soccer and basketball and things like that where these inmates would be taken out into the community and they would play in you know recreational leagues so just to kind of reintegrate over time so I had spent quite a lot of time and um, you know that for me was amazing because I was able to see that 
there, there is this misconception that everyone in prison is a bad person. Like everyone's horrible, yeah. horrible person, which is not the case. There is people obviously that are, you know, have done serious, heinous crimes, but there's also people like yourself who, you know, they didn't harm it. You didn't harm anybody. You didn't bring harm to anybody or do anything that's, um, you know, that someone would call, you know, a horrible thing. So there, for me, it was really good to be able to see that, like, not everyone is a bad person. And I'm sure you had the same experience where, um, you know, you got to meet people who had just had bad luck or something had gone wrong in their life or they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, things like that. Yeah, and I mean, and look, I'm, I, that's really fascinating that you got that viewpoint as a kid. And, and I hope, <laughs> I'm going to hope that your dad, you know, and I, I mean, this is all due respect. You know, I don't know the system in Australia. You know, in the United States, unfortunately, um, you know, correctional officers tend to be, um, you know, a lot of the ones that I came in contact with were the were the guys who, you know, pulled the fly, the wings off of flies when they were kids, and they were they were you know they were in complete control, and they they liked that feeling, mm-hmm. and they liked that uh, it was clear that they thrived on power um that their position and uniform gave them and it's it's interesting that such a you know in the u.s system about over 80 percent of all inmates in the federal system are there for some drug-related charge yet there is no drug treatment in Mm. the federal prison system which makes no sense whatsoever you know because society should actually dictate that people get treatment while they're in prison and that they get education and that they get uh, opportunity. And, and while for some people they're like, well, screw those guys, you know, they're in prison, they don't deserve it. But mm-hmm. the fact is, and I know the same is true in Australia, you know, 99% of all the people in prison are going to get out. And so who do you want as your neighbor? You know, somebody who actually got a high school degree or even a college degree while they were in prison or they, they learned a skill or they learned how to deal with their drug addiction or problem. You know, that's who you want as your neighbor, not the guy who just gets out after 20 years and he's, he's angry. He's without skills, has no chance of getting a job, and he's just going to return to the same life. And, you know, and it's also just such a suck on taxpayers, you know, because we, we are the ones, all of us are the ones paying for these folks to stay in prison. And, you know, prison is a business, you know, in the United States. Again, I think Australia does, I think Australia has a more enlightened view on, you know, how to treat inmates but um you know it just is i always say to my conservative friends which i do have a few you know i'm like look you might be tough on crime you know that might be your viewpoint but you know fiscally i don't think you want to spend all of your tax dollars you know keeping some guy who the guy i mentioned who had 25 years in the cell next to me he had two shoplifting charges when he was young when he was a teenager Mm. And his third strike was a, a single gram of crack cocaine. And, you know, he got a 25-year sentence for an amount of drugs that, you know, yeah. hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have held in their hand. And it's just, you know, the disparity in how easy it is to take somebody's life away. And then, you know, what you mentioned a moment ago is really important. And I've 
you know, I, I have tried to be an advocate for uh, criminal justice reform primarily so that when people do get out, they are given the right to vote. They're given the right to not be labeled, you know, a felon uh, for the rest of their lives because, Again, it's harmful for society. And so, I don't know, man. I guess the whole thing is, I went there um, and I started to run. And here's the thing that I found for me personally. People started to come up to me and say, can you teach me how to run? Like, can you, and it's, it's what I call attraction rather than promotion. It's this idea that, and it's true not just for like <laughs> prison, but in normal life. If you go out there and you live your life, you know, as you choose to live it in a positive way and you do it publicly, some people will be attracted to your way of life. Mm. I think 29029 is a great example of this. You know, sure, there's promotions because it's a business, but um, it's also a quest for people. It's a vision quest. And just doing it and, and letting people see you on this quest of training at four and then doing the event that's the most attractive thing about it. Whereas the person who turns the corner and over promotes themselves around it, it tends to be a turnoff for people. Mm -hmm. So I took that same idea in prison and I just went about my business. And when I, when I arrived at Beckley, there were about three guys that were running on a regular basis. And by the time I left Beckley, I, you know, I had a running group of more than 50 guys that were running with me every single day. That's awesome. And I even I started doing yoga in prison on the softball field, and I I, I always say that I don't recommend that to people <laughs> because uh, not not a great idea. And people made fun of me, and I got heckled a lot. But by the time I left Beckley, I had 25 guys doing yoga with me three days a week. And you know maybe the most important thing I did was almost you know almost illegally i started teaching addiction recovery classes in prison and basically holding my own aa meetings on the mm -hmm. side um and gathering people because they were not being equipped for life on the outside you know they were they were going to be thrown right back out to the wolves and the same problems as addicts especially that they had that got them in prison that landed them there they still had those problems they maybe they didn't get access to the drugs and alcohol federal prisons not you know there was drugs and alcohol in federal prison but maybe not the way you see in the movies you know it wasn't that easy and so you know an addict who's then just thrown back out into society with no support and no education is ultimately going to fall victim to addiction again and end up right back in prison so so I, I was given an education, man. And I mean, maybe that's why I was there. I'm, I'm not one of those people that believes that things happen for a reason. I, I actually always call bullshit on that because it's things just happen. Mm. Good and bad things happen to everybody. And what, what the lesson is behind it can't be determined until you figure out what you're going to do with that lesson mm. and with that experience. And so, you know, for me, uh, I learned a tremendous amount in there. And I, I, by day, by day five in prison, I had come to understand that I needed to approach it the same way I approached sobriety. And that was with, uh, you know, a curious mind and an open heart. And if I could look at prison through that lens, 
that I could actually use it as a learning experience and, you know, and, and a measure of acceptance was part of it too. I had to accept the fact that this is where I was going to be for a year and a half and I could either make something out of it or I could make myself and everybody around me miserable. Mm. And, you know, and I, I chose to, to be curious. I chose to be curious and just see what would come from it. And I think that's the only way you can approach it. And I, you know, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope that I'm never in that situation. Um, and I hope that, you know, people I love and know aren't in that situation, but, um, and it's interesting you say that, you know, I'm actually a big believer in what everything happens for a reason. And I think that, you know, maybe my perception of that is skewed because, you know, I haven't had that many bad things happen to me, but I always approach it as, as if, um, you're only given what you can handle and it, you know, it would take time and you learn lessons and those lessons build into the knowledge that you have. So that's kind of my approach to it. And I can definitely see your point of view on it. Um, one final question on this, you know, obviously that it follows you around the fact that, you know, you've been to prison and you can, you speak about it and you put perspective on it and you, and you, you know, you've done a good job, but I'm sure there's not a, as many or not everyone's as understanding as me or other people that you've spoken to. And basically, you know, because you've done that, you're a bad person and you know, you don't get the opportunities that you would have had before, or they just write you off as a, you know, as a bad guy. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, has that followed you around throughout your life and since you've been released? No, it's a great question because it it is multi-layered. I'm not going to go into all the details, but one of the funny things, I mean, I, I say funny now is that, um, you know, the people who saw Running the Sahara, the film, back in the day, you know, some people thought I was an asshole in the, in the film. And so they assumed that I'm just an asshole in general. So mm-hmm. then a couple of years later, you know, I get arrested and I go to prison. And it basically just, you know, those people then got the opportunity to say, see, I told you that guy was an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there were some, you know, there were some painful things that came out of it in the sense that, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, the, the, uh, there were, you know, if you read your, let's put it this way and I, I try not to do it, you know, but if you get online and you read reviews, you read things and whatever, then, um, you know, of course there's painful things that, that strangers write online. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that a lot of the things that I probably lost out on, I didn't even know I lost out on them, you know, speaking gigs or whatever, you know, somebody Googles me and they're like, Hey, but but here's the thing. And then I think is the most important part. I, um, I owned it, you know, and I own it today. I mean, I don't own the guilty part of it. I own the fact that I was in prison Mm -hmm. and I've done a, I think I've done a good job through the years of not like beating the drum of my innocence or whatever. You know, I fully admit that, you know, just like most of us, even, even wounds that are, that are inflicted upon us by out of the blue, we have some hand in creating the groundwork that led to it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so for me, you know, I'm, I fully admit that I probably had a hand in creating some of the situation, you know, but the fact is, um, you know, I, whether I deserved it or not, I got labeled with this, you know, this felon. So I, I use the, uh, I don't know if I said this to you before, but I use the uh, M&M, if anybody ever saw that movie, Eight Mile. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's a, it's a rap battle thing. It's this crazy movie at, at the very end of it, you know, Eminem has the final rap battle and, and rapping is very much about being personal about the other person. And so Eminem gets up on the stage and he basically says all the bad things about himself. And, you know, and, and the other guy has nothing to say. Yeah. And so I can tell you that I approach my life that way. Yeah. You know, I, I put everything out there. If somebody doesn't want to hire me for a speaking gig or whatever, then don't hire me, you know, or whatever it is. But I, I think that most of us recognize how close we are to the edge, how easily, especially what happened to me, mm-hmm. There are millions of people. I mean, I've had I've had ten thousand people approach me or write to me or whatever and say, "Oh my God, I, I you know, I can't believe you went to prison for this." Yeah. You know, because you know I had twenty eight mortgages at one time, and you know, and I mean, whatever. I mean, a lot of people have been very forthcoming about, <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So I've had a lot of I've had just as much understanding as I have you know, haters. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, every once in a while, you know, someone will crop up and still manage to hurt my feelings, which is surprising to me that I'm, that I'm able to get my feelings hurt about it. But, um, you know, but generally, I mean, if, if just like addiction, Travis, I have, you know, it is a part of who I am. And I, I said this, you know, before I wouldn't take a, I wouldn't take a pill if it made me a normal drinker today because, because addiction and recovery is part of who I am. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no unringing the bell, you know, for, I will always be somebody who spent, you know, a year and a half of my life in federal prison. And if I was pardoned tomorrow, um, you know, which could happen, you know, someday, because a lot of people, you know, the New York times wrote about me. A lot of folks have written about me and I, I took up, I, I, I took the attitude that I'd rather have other people defend me than me defend myself, because I think we all, when we see someone going to great lengths to defend themselves, it, it sort of comes off as, gosh, it, it, I wonder what that guy's hiding. It's a, it's a trick of human nature, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I've let other people fight those battles for me. It's been, and it's been fine, but I'm, you know, it's actually a, in a weird way, it's an enriching part of my life. And I wouldn't, I actually wouldn't trade it, which sounds crazy, but I wouldn't give it back now. It's part of who I am. And I, I learned a lot of empathy when I was locked up. Well, I think, it, you know, obviously it's futile to do that, but I think that part of what I'm gathering in the, you know, the chance I've, I've had this, the time I've spent with you and the conversations we've had is there's a, you know, there's a really good sense of self-awareness and, you know, you, you know yourself, you know, what works for you, you you know your narrative, you stand in it and whatever comes your way is because it's meant to come your way and, you know, you're self-aware about what what works and what makes you tick and, you know, that's what makes Charlie, Charlie. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and again, I I own it. I appreciate you saying that, you know, it's it's just part of who I am now and I'm, and I'm good with it. And I, I think, you know, here's what's funny. And I even, uh, I won't name names, but there's other people in the running world and in, uh, the adventure world. And I, I jokingly say that, you know, they are like, you know, they're white bread and a lot of people want white bread. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people want straightforward, you know, whatever white bread. And I always say that I'm more like sprouted rye, you know, I'm not, I'm not everybody's taste, but, 
you know, um, you know, if you, uh, you know, yeah, if you, if you want something a little bit different and maybe a little more experienced and seasoned, then, uh, I'm, I'm more your cup of tea. And look, I love, you know, you saw me, I love being, I enjoy being on stage. I really do. And it's not a showmanship thing. It's, it's that I like being raw. You know, I like how it feels to just like open up my guts on stage and share that with people. And I, I, I like the feeling of taking them through a, on a ride, on a roller coaster ride. Um, you know, and that's just, uh, you know, it's fun for me. Well, I know, you know, have, having seen that and, and experienced that in, in Vermont at the 29 and 29 event, I know that people, you know, really enjoyed that and got a lot from it but i think the the biggest benefit or the biggest thing that came from you being at that event was you also then stepped on the mountain with the people um you know when you were there and you're able to interact and hike and sit down and have meals and just be a part of that community um you know and we've touched on it a couple of times but i'd love to hear what you thought when you first heard about the 29 or 29 event I mean, look, I was, first of all, I was incredibly, right away, I was incredibly jealous. I was like, man, I absolutely want to go do one of those events, you know, because it's, it's so, um, I knew, I knew immediately that it was going to be a really hard physical thing, uh, but in a controlled environment. And I knew that it would attract you know, a handful of people like me who have experience with climbing, who, you know, have done ultras and all of that. But I knew instinctively that it was going to bring a ton of uh, newbies, basically people who haven't had that kind of hard experience before. And just inherently, I think I understood that what an opportunity it was to, you know, spend time with people who, are probably successful in business and in life, but are looking for a challenge. And when I was, I'll tell you the first thing I ever heard about Travis, to be truthful though, was hell on the hill, Mm, right? which is one of Jesse's, you know, other things. And, and, um, and so I sort of heard about these two things simultaneously when I first became aware of 29029 and, and, uh, and I, I just knew that both of them were incredibly attractive to me. And I, I like the, for some reason, I'm always attracted to <laughs> a grind, mm. like something that is really, I love something that's straightforward, hard. And, and you know, the nuance that surprised me, I guess, I don't know why it did, but the nuance at in Vermont was, was two major things for me. Number one is how I would be affected by the personalities that were there. I, I didn't fully appreciate until I was there um, the fact that I was going to have, you know, I was going to have 30 meaningful conversations. And I mean meaningful um, while climbing this mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, because there is nothing, you, you can't meet somebody in a coffee shop and have the same kind of conversation that you can with them while you're climbing a mountain. It's just, it's raw and it scrapes away all the crap of daily life. And, and you kind of, 
in the first two minutes of a conversation on Stratton Mountain, I would be having a deep conversation with somebody about why they're there, about who they are, about what they hope to get out of it. And like, that just doesn't happen. You don't have to do all the, all the niceties leading up to those deep things when you're on the mountain. It just goes right to that. Right to it. Yeah, there's something special about being in that environment that, you know, I have the privilege of talking to many people who have done the event or are planning to do the event and they're kind of working their way up in the training. Um, but it's, you know, I noticed this switch between someone who kind of gets it and they kind of understand they may not have been there and done it before until after and they're like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand there's this magic there and there's no way to escape being on your feet for that amount of time whether you're the fastest person you know whether you're colin o'brady or those guys who crank it out in 15 hours or the amazing people who keep going around the clock for 36 hours there's no escaping time in your shoes and that just breaks down layers it breaks down barriers that people have and they leave this these experiences a changed person and it's a change that can fulfill and be shown in in their regular lives as well it's not you know you'd feel it on Sunday afternoon, then you drive home on Monday, it's all gone. Like this extends into people's lives perpetually. I, I could not agree more. And I, I have had more, I'm in contact with about a dozen people that I met on the mountain at this point. Like I had people reach out to me afterwards, whether it was about addiction and recovery, because not surprisingly, you know, and I've known this forever, high achieving people mm-hmm. uh, have addiction issues and or they have issues with addiction in their families or it's one of the things I actually speak on is that my, you know, I said it, I've said it already today, my, my addictive nature actually makes me good at things. Yeah. And so as long as I'm not drinking and doing drugs, my addict is a, is a really good companion to help me be successful. And there were tons of people on that mountain with the same, you know, with the same chemical makeup, whether, whether their addiction never manifested in drug addiction. I'm not, I'm not implying that, but they're driven and they're trying to figure out how to sort of balance things a bit. Mm -hmm. And, and so I've had a lot of contact from people who, want to go, some of them just want to figure out how they can take the next step to an even harder physical challenge. Um, like, you know, whatever that might be for them. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, or they want to find a way into sobriety or some of them it's about their son or daughter or whatever it might be also who might be struggling with addiction. But that's one of the other beautiful things is that that kind of event it just opens people up to be honest and raw in a way that's hard to find in daily life. And yeah, and I, it's a life changer, man. I mean, for a lot of people, it's a life changer. And I consider it to be, you know, one of the very best and best organized events that I've ever done. Yeah, I, I would agree yeah. with that. And I think that one thing that's, you know, the team at 29 and 29 really emphasizes is the experience and really making sure that it is world-class and top-notch and it's um you know more than that it's just providing an environment as you say for people to change their lives and it's not just and you touched on it at the beginning but i just want to kind of reiterate it is 
there's people there who are ultra endurance athletes that we've had Olympians come in and compete at those races or those, uh, those events. We've had people like yourself who are, you know, masters of endurance, Colin O'Brady shows up, Jesse Itzler is a, you know, hundred miler and, and people like that who have that endurance experience. It's a different thing for them. It's not showing up at a race and looking over your shoulder and wondering who's there to compete with you. So that's a, a beautiful, you know, change and juxtaposition to what a regular race would be. But then there's also average Joes, and I use that with you know as an endearing term. They're not they're not endurance athletes. They're not average at all in their normal lives, but they're not endurance athletes, and they can show up in a safe environment and they can push themselves further than they ever thought they could, and they can walk away wondering, okay, what is next? Like you mentioned, there's people looking at, okay, what's my next endurance challenge, or what am I going to take on next? It's going to keep building on this high water mark of human achievement that they've just experienced. Yeah, well, it forces you, and even with me, you know, I, I, I say this, you know, and I know the same is true for Colin and for Jesse and some of the other great athletes that are there. It, everybody climbs the same mountain, and you climb it the same number of times. You know, it's still hard, and it's relative. And I've said this forever. You know, even if I'm running a three-hour marathon, the person who's out there for five hours, relatively speaking, it doesn't mean that they – you know, in fact, they may have struggled more than I did. You know, their their struggle and their ability to push through pain in some ways is even greater than mine. I just happen to be, you know, faster for whatever reason. But it's it's not, you know, there's no, the five-hour marathoner doesn't work any less hard than the three-hour marathoner, 230. You know, it's just simply a, a relative thing. And, and the the determination it it takes to get through something like 29029 is I saw people out there. I mean, just like you saw the one guy, Adam, who mm -hmm. was, you know, very heavy and the guy made one, you know, he made it up one climb and that climb up that mountain. I would, I would argue that his climb up that mountain was harder for him than anything, you know, relatively speaking, that I've done in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Like he's, you know, the effort that it took, the the the, the humility he showed in, in putting himself out there as someone who was going to struggle. And he knew he was going to struggle going into this. And his, his struggle was public. It was laid out for everybody to see. Yeah. You know, as we all climb the mountain multiple times while he was out there climbing the same, you know, climbing the mountain once. And yet I think it inspired everybody, everybody who saw him because, you know, it's just it's just amazing what it what so what the person who is struggling like that can do. Uh, if he puts his mind to it or she and I, I don't know I was just really moved by that I, and I was too and I you know I saw how meaningful it was for him to finish one um, and he's you know I, I'm sure he doesn't mind me telling saying this but he signed up again for 2020 to come back and, and do more and it's cha right. it's changed his <laughs> life like it's it's you know four and a half hours to do one hike and as you said people were lapping that course so everyone got to see yeah. and encourage him and pat him on the back and give him a bit more of a motivation to keep going but it was and then he stuck around the whole weekend and he was there cheering and he was the first one to high five and he was a part you know it's so cool so so cool I, yeah. love, I love it he cheered for me I mean he cheered for me on the top he was there when I finished yeah and 
you know, and that was really, that was huge. And I'll guarantee you that guy next year, I mean, he may not do 17 loops, but I'll guarantee you he does more than one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just no doubt he's going to use that as fuel, you know, for the fire. And I mean, that's all anybody can ever want is to have is to have fuel to keep trying to keep doing more. And I think that's what the that's what the event did. And it did it for me, too. I mean, I'd I'd go back to another one of those in a heartbeat. And, you know, I love seeing new venues. So I actually Mm -hmm. hope I get to do one of the events like in Utah or Idaho, just because I, you know, Yep. I, I like I like the concept. I love the concept actually, and I think that it's uh, you know. So I know it's something I'll keep doing in the future. Yeah, amazing. Um, talking about the future, I know you're kind of in the middle of your 5.8 um, global expedition series and and series of events. So I'd love to hear more about that. Um, so yeah, what's the what's the 5.8 and and what uh, how far along are you and 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 what can we do to support and help you in the, in that mission? Oh man, thank you. Well, you know, and I know we've been on a long time, so I'll keep it brief because there's so much information online people can find out. But basically, you know, my 5.8 Global Expedition series is is basically a series of adventures that takes me from the lowest elevation on each of the seven continents to the highest elevation on each one. And the first expedition is already in the books. I did it just a couple months ago in Africa, where I went from Djibouti, uh, which is way on the coast of East Africa, all the way across uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Tanzania to the very top of Kilimanjaro. So it was over 2,500 miles on foot and on bike and swimming and diving and climbing all the way from the lowest to the highest point. And And look, as we've been talking about now for, you know, quite a while today, uh, life is pretty much this long series, this long roller coaster for all of us, these highs and lows. And I just wanted to put with 5.8, I wanted to put a a literal uh, stamp on it of of going physically from the lowest places to the highest points on the planet uh, to sort of highlight this journey that we are all on. And, you know, the ultimate expedition in this series will be from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the planet, to the very top of Mount Everest. And that one will not be until 2021. But I've got several expeditions coming up. To do it. But I had kind of mapped out this route. And uh, I'd actually spent quite a bit of time in, in Jindabyne, um, which is a town um, yeah. in um, in the Snowy Mountains and, and tra- doing mm-hmm. training camps when I was racing as a triathlete. So I spent quite a bit of time there. So we would ride up to Kosciuszko and to the you know the end of the road and then you can run up a trail to get to the top. And as you say, it's achievable. It's definitely, you know, you, you're definitely working hard, but it is achievable. So clearly we need to have a follow-up discussion because I need your, I need your local knowledge and I'll take your family help and you know, look, I gave you my word. Even if I go knock this thing out, we'll go back and we'll do, it do it again, again. Yeah, you know, awesome. together. So love it. it sounds like a great adventure, and I'd, I'd love to experience it with you. So, But I appreciate the support, and, um, uh, you know, I'll keep you posted. Amazing. Yeah, let's uh, let's follow up and have a chat. And maybe we can do a little another, uh, another episode together while you're there or throughout these journeys. We can check in and, uh, yeah. and, and 
do some of that. Uh, we could do a live. Well. We could do a live thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love that. That'd be great. Um, me too. The other thing you had mentioned to me that uh, that you didn't mention there was the support of Green Org or the creation of Green Org as a Green dot org. Um, excuse me, as a part of this expedition. Do you want to share a little bit more about that as well? Yeah, thank you for that. Well, you know, as part of running the Sahara, you know, I had the good fortune to be, you know, a co-founder with Matt Damon of H2O Africa, which, you know, today is water.org. And I know I mentioned that earlier, but um, based on that, my experience there, you know, I decided to create green.org and it is an environmentally focused nonprofit that is just now launching. And our you know, our focus is to bring attention to the needs of the areas that I'm passing through. And so each of those areas will be a little bit different, dependent upon, you know, where I am and, and what's going on. But the purpose is to use uh, proprietary technologies that we own to help local nonprofits in communities along the way. So in some places that might be uh, water, it might be poverty, it might be energy, it might be human rights. It really just depends on on the region. And we, you know, we want to provide both financial and technological support all along the way. So I'm really excited about it. And for those people who do, you know, who do care and particularly about the, um, you know, about the environment specifically, you know, I encourage them to check out green.org, look at the things that we're doing and, you know, consider at least keeping track of what we're up to and providing some support from time to time. Mm -hmm. Well, I know for sure that, you know, there's some communities along the route in Australia that could definitely use support with, you know, the Murray-Darling Murray Murray Basin and some of the issues with sediment and runoff into the biggest river in Australia. So there's issues along there. And, um, you know, I don't know how interested you are in spending time in some of those smaller communities, but there's ep epidemics of methamphetamine use and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's creating a lot of problems in rural, rural Australia. So there's, you know, I'm sure there's people that you could meet and talk to along the way that would probably appreciate hearing your, hearing your story as well. So there's, you know, there's some issues that. Oh man, sure. honestly, that is, that is incredible. And we need, we need to have a follow up like. Yeah about that because that's you you actually just nailed exactly what i'm looking for there mm -hmm. is is both from the uh, addiction standpoint and from the environmental standpoint those are two things and i would love you know this is an event australia in particular will be one that i i want to have i'm going to build in the time uh, to be able to stop and spend some time with folks um, and not just be rushing through because look Ultimately, 5.8 is not so much an, a, an athletic endeavor. I mean, yes, it's the athletic part of it is attractive to people and it's going to be and it. And it is. It's very difficult. But the fact of the matter is, you know, that's what I always say is the hook. Mm -hmm. um, it gets people interested in this idea. And then, you know, ultimately, I take that interest and hopefully get them to you know, to care about the environment or other people and understand that that's what this is all about. Yeah. Well, I think it's amazing, mate. And I'm, I'm here and happy and willing to support wherever and however I can, because I think that the, the conversations need to be had. There needs to be an awareness and uh, an understanding of, you know, what's happening outside of your one square meter box that you live in. Um, and, you know, opening yeah. our eyes to, to what, what else is out there. So, uh, kudos to you for the work that you have done and continue to do. And um, yeah, wherever I can lend a hand, I'm, I'm here to help.
I'll ask. I'll ask soon. So I'll follow up with you right away. But I, I can't thank you enough for having me on and for having this I had a really amazing conversation, and uh, you know, I hope we get to do it again soon. Absolutely, Charlie. I really appreciate it, mate. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We'll All right, we'll do it again. Sounds good. Take Thanks, care. mate. Cheers. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, as always, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to meet and interact with such amazing human beings, just like my mate Charlie. Uh, as mentioned, you can learn more about Charlie from his website, charlieengel.com, and he has links to all of his relevant social media channels. There's information about his 5.8 Global Adventure series and much more. His blog is also a must-read. Uh, I've just finished reading a bunch of entries. He has some outstanding stories about his 5.8 trip through Africa, uh, which we didn't get to cover in the conversation, in particular post titled One Bullet, One Goat. It's a must-read. I'll link to that, so please make sure you go check it out. Thanks also to the team at 2929 for bringing Charlie and I together. Uh, we've become great mates since, and I look forward to many more conversations and adventures in the future. Uh, if you have enjoyed the show, I do have one ask. I would love it if you could just share with one of your friends. I'd love to grow the show, and word of mouth is the best way for that to happen. So send a link to your friends, screenshot it, share it on social media. It would mean so much if you could do that. And also, please stay tuned for more inspiring stories and interesting people from the world of endurance sports. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is Inner Voice.